0: Emojis have become a key part of how we communicate with one another. But have you ever wondered how we came to have the emojis that we do? And what if we have an idea for a new one?
1: Spencer Eldon was only four months old when he became famous for a certain picture he's in. Well, now that he's grown,
0: he's decided he's not too happy about it. But the courts disagree. Although some film studios have successfully digitally inserted actors into their films after the actor has passed away, is this strange wave of the future justified or even legal? We'll discuss the debate surrounding resurrecting the dead for film.
1: All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it.
0: So, Dave, whenever it comes to texting on your phone, you probably use emojis like pretty much everybody. Uh, If you were to open your messages right now and kind of look at your most used emojis, which ones are we going to see? I'll tell you what, let me do
1: it really quick. Okay, so open up my texts. Let's see. Um, uh, We've got the rocket. We've got uh, the upside down smiley face, which means like, oh, uh, you're kind of like annoyed or, oh, this is a lot. <laughs> uh, I've got the guy raising his hand in the ear, uh, the fire emoji, the light bulb. And also my, my most recent favorite is a basketball that looks like it's on fire. Uh, so I do that like when I'm happy.
0: See, that's, that's what I was about to ask. Like, what are you even using that one for? <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm looking at mine right now, and pretty much all mine, this might be a red flag, but they're all about being stressed out. So I have, like, the crying, the face that's melting, um, the one with just the line for the mouth, uh, the one with the spinning eyes, and then the skull. So, you know, I I guess I'm just, like, been going through it lately or something. Now,
1: forever, I meant to use, like, the rock-on hand, and I was using the one with the thumb out, which means I love you. And so this kind of goes back to like the LOL thing, where I used to use LOL, like lots of love. It's followed me into adulthood. You've
0: always been a little behind in internet communication. That's fine. I have. Well, Dave, emojis, they've become an integral part of our daily digital communication. We use them to express our emotions and add context to our messages, convey humor. And since half our communication is nonverbal, emojis sort of fill this certain unique communication gap in a way that has allowed them to become such a staple of the way we talk to each other. But have you ever wondered where emojis come from and then how did we finally get the emojis that we use today? So let's explore the history of emojis, the role of the Unicode Consortium in developing new emojis and the process for getting a new emoji approved and added to the Unicode standard. Emojis actually have their roots in Japan in the late 1990s, when a Japanese mobile operator introduced a set of 176 pictograms that could be used in text messages. These early emojis were designed to express emotions, and they quickly became popular in Japan. So then as mobile technology spread around the world, so did the use of emojis. However, there was a problem. Different platforms used different sets of emojis, which meant that a message sent from one platform might not be interpreted correctly on another platform. So to address this issue, a nonprofit organization called the Unicode Consortium was formed in 1991. The Unicode Consortium's mission is to develop, maintain, and promote software internalization standards and data, including the Unicode Standard, which is the universal character encoding that assigns a unique number to every character used in digital communication. So in 2010, the Unicode Consortium recognized the importance of emojis and then began incorporating them into the Unicode Standard. This move allowed emojis to be displayed consistently across different platforms, making it easier for people to communicate with each other regardless of the device they were using. So if you've ever wondered how new emojis are added to the Unicode standard, here's how it works. First, anyone can submit a proposal for a new emoji to the Unicode consortium. The proposal must include a detailed description of the proposed emoji, including what it would look like and how it would be used, and then why it's important. Next, the proposal is reviewed by the Unicode Emoji Subcommittee, which is responsible for reviewing <laughs> and approving. Of course there's a subcommittee. A subcommittee, oh. yeah, of
1: course. Where, where I work, there's, a, there's not only a signage committee, there's a tree committee. So it's like if something's (laughs) going on with a tree, the committee will tell you, "Yeah,
0: we can cut off that one little teeny limb." Uh, I work in a school, and we have committees for teachers, and there was a committee about um, that was formed to address copier issues—the copier committee—and it's like infamous (laughs) in our school history because they literally did a whole presentation about like paper and moisture. I looked around, I was like, "What are we doing here?" (laughs) Like, you know, (laughs) we don't need this. Well, that subcommittee, they evaluate each one of these proposals based on all kinds of criteria, including whether the proposed emoji fills a gap in the current set of emojis, whether it is frequently requested by users, and whether it has broad appeal across cultures. Jennifer Daniel, the current head of the Unicode subcommittee, told MIT Technology Review this... One of the goals I have is to make sure the emojis are globally relevant concepts. They have to relate to everyone in the world. That's not to say that globally relevant means the emoji means the same thing to all around the world. Hand gestures can mean different things, for example. But we have to know the history. Rope is a good example. It became a lynching emoji. We have to anticipate that. History is completely unavoidable with design. We ended up making a not emoji instead. Same meaning, but the design is different. That's my primary priority. So Dave, if the subcommittee approves the proposal, the next step is to design the emoji. The Unicode Emoji subcommittee does not design emojis itself, but instead relies on designers and vendors to create new emoji designs. Once the design is complete, the subcommittee reviews it and then finally approves it. So the new emoji is then added at that point to the Unicode Standard and then it becomes available on all devices and platforms that support the Unicode Standard. So Dave, emojis, they've come a long way since the early days as a set of 176 pictograms. Thanks to the work of the Unicode Consortium, emojis are now a universal language that can be understood by anyone, regardless of where they are in the world or what device they're using. And with the process of adding new emojis to the Unicode Standard, we can look forward to many more emojis in the future.
1: All right. So, let's get your guess. What is the most used
0: emoji? I feel like it's got to be like the thumbs up or something. The upside down face. (laughs) Of course it is. Because it means literally whatever you want it to mean. So everybody uses it. I told you. Okay, I'm actually, I'm
1: lying. That's number two. (laughs) But number one is the face holding back tears. The laughing cry emoji. Yeah. But the upside down face. Number two. Now, the least used emoji is the aerial tramway emoji. (laughs) Jay, as parents, we've all done it. We sometimes make our kids do things they don't want to do. Like my son, for example, would eat Cheetos for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But you know, I'm just guessing here. Probably not a good idea, so I don't let him. I make him eat non-Cheeto things as much as I possibly can. So, Jay, how about you? What's something that either was done to you or that you've done to your kids that wasn't necessarily popular?
0: Well, I uh, I grew up in a house that was very much like if you choose to do it, you stick it out. You know, So even if you sign up for a sport and a couple games in, you're like, I'm not into this. You had to finish the season, which in hindsight uh-huh. makes sense, and I appreciate it. And so now I'm doing that to my kids. If, uh, if we sign up for it, like we're in. It doesn't even matter if you hate it. We're going to finish it, and then we can quit.
1: Well, Jay, for a man named Spencer Eldon, what was done to him led to an entire world seeing him in his birthday suit, something that actually still continues to this day. And Jay, believe it or not, you've seen it, and I've seen it too. If it's not the most famous album cover ever, it's at least in the running. Because, you see, Eldon is the naked baby on the front of the band Nirvana's groundbreaking 1991 album, Nevermind. And, Jay, it's not that Eldon hasn't tried to get this reversed. In fact, just last year, in September of 2022, Eldon filed a lawsuit against the band Nirvana and its record label and was promptly dismissed again. Jay, this dismissal marked the second time Elder has tried to sue and failed. The lawsuits filed by Elder argue that the case has misinterpreted a federal sexual exploitation law known as Masha's Law, saying that Nirvana and the label have both profited off of child pornography that famously features him on the cover. Eldon, now in his lower 30s, was only four months old when the famous photo was taken at an underwater aquatic center in Pasadena, California. Eldon's latest lawsuit dismissal, Jay, named deceased former frontman Kurt Cobain and his estate, the former bandmates, along with photographer Kirk Weddle, Universal Music, Geffen Records, Warner Records, and MCA Music and the last lawsuit attempt sought at least $150,000 in damages from each defendant, along with legal fees. Most child pornography is traded well into the victim's adulthood, attorney Margaret Mabee said to NPR. Masha's law permits victims to sue for each violation of their privacy when their childhood images remain in circulation. Masha's law, the law cited by Eldon, is named for Masha Allen, a Russian orphan adopted at the age of five. It's a federal statute that was introduced by Senator John Kerry in 2007 and signed into law as part of the Adam Walsh Act of 2007. It increases the civil penalties for creating, distributing, downloading, and possessing child pornography on the Internet. But Jay, as I just said, the latest lawsuit was dismissed by Judge Fernando Olguin of the Central District Court in California citing that the now adult Eldon had waited too long to file the suit. The judge cites the law's statute of limitations, which requires a child pornography victim to bring a claim either 10 years after they discover the violation or injury against them or 10 years after they turn 18. But old Jay, here's the thing. Before you feel too bad for Eldon, there's also this. Eldon hasn't always felt this way. Part of the defense against him cites actions from Eldon where he's actually tried to profit off of his baby fame. He's been paid to autograph the album, and Jay, he's even played up his Nirvana baby title by reenacting the photo as an adult. <laughs> Don't th- do not want to see that. <laughs> yeah, I'll send that over to you after we're done. <laughs> so does Elden though, have a point? Well, I mean, I think you could argue that, yeah, he does. I'm not sure how I'd feel about being a naked baby model for anything. Like if I were mad about being the Gerber baby, for instance, but I was going around getting paid to eat baby food with my shirt off and a baby bonnet on, I might have some other issues to consider.
0: Yeah, that's quite an image you getting paid to <laughs> be a uh, literal <laughs> baby as an adult. <laughs> that's going to stick for a long time. Um, I do like how the court system was basically just like, nah. <laughs> You and I like to, you know, hit the movie theater together sometimes and catch uh, movies that are popular in the theaters. And uh, we oftentimes end up at Marvel Studios movies because they're kind of like fun blockbusters, you know. But there's always something that kind of like bothers me a little bit about you. And that's that there's always in credit scenes that like show things and tease things of the future but you have kind of made it like part of your personality that you leave before the end credit scenes. Would you like to respond to this?
1: I will not be held hostage by such a thing.
0: (laughs) So, So it's a power thing. So really
1: what I'm doing is I'm taking the power back from them. So they're trying to take the power of your time by forcing you to sit through these things, when actually I'm like, nah, nah. I can just go home, watch it on YouTube on my own time. Last time, when you and I went to a movie, I watched it on YouTube in the parking lot. You hadn't even seen the first one yet, because they do two of them, by the way. There's a mid-credit one, followed by an end-credit one, and most of the time, they're nonsense, and they don't really do anything or advance the story. Well,
0: it should also be said that you do abandoned me alone, too. Like, I have to That's sit there That's your own personal choice. You, you could follow me out. Every now, time. last
1: time, it was a power play.
0: You and I I went to the uh,
1: latest Ant-Man movie, and after the movie was there, it was a pretty packed theater, movie's over, I get up and walk out, nobody else did. So every single person in there thought, you know what they thought? You think that they thought, oh, that guy, what an idiot.
0: Actually what they thought was, what a cool person. Uh, I guess that's, uh, that's definitely a way to look at it, but... Uh, Speaking of Marvel and Marvel Studios, uh, in 2021, Marvel Studios released a sequel to their highly acclaimed film, Black Panther, called Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And although the franchise was a major success, the studio faced a really difficult decision. The star of the franchise, Chadwick Boseman, had tragically passed away in 2020 So of the available options on how to proceed, one option on the table was to make the sequel using a completely digital version of Bozeman. And although ultimately the studio decided not to take this route, the question of how to jump the hurdle of an actor in a role who has passed away is both not unprecedented and not without some controversy. So, Dave, the technology behind deepfake and digital resurrection has opened up this whole new world of possibilities for filmmakers. But with this new technology, there comes a set of ethical questions, like should we be digitally resurrecting actors who have passed away to continue their roles in movies and TV shows? And then if we do, what are the implications of these actions? The idea of bringing deceased actors back to life in films is not a new one, but the technology to do so has only recently become available. The practice of digitally resurrecting actors raises ethical concerns that have yet to be fully addressed, One of the main concerns is whether this practice is a form of exploitation of the deceased actor. Some argue that resurrecting an actor without their consent is unethical, even if they had previously played the role. Additionally, many question the legality of using an actor's likeness without their consent or the consent of their estate. Another concern is the potential impact on the actor's legacy— For example, if an actor's image is used to create a performance they never gave, it could damage their reputation if the performance isn't up to their usual standard. Also, if the technology progresses and is used more frequently, it could raise the question of whether a new generation will know the actors from their original works or just as digital versions. And then on top of it, just consider the fact that working actors are trying to find jobs and imagine losing that job to a digitally created actor, probably not great for the industry. But despite the ethical considerations, there are practical reasons to consider digitally resurrecting actors. For example, it could allow the filmmakers to complete projects that were left unfinished because of an actor's untimely death. Also, it could help preserve the cultural legacy of a beloved actor, allowing them to continue to inspire new generations of fans. However, there are also practical challenges associated with digital resurrection. One of the main challenges is just the cost. The technology to create a believable digital recreation of an actor is really expensive and really time-consuming, which could limit its use to only the most high-profile and profitable projects. Another challenge is the potential for uncanny valley, which refers to the discomfort people experience when they see a digital recreation that looks almost but not quite like the real thing. This could be distracting and potentially ruin the viewing experience. Also, recreating the actor's voice and body movements can be challenging and may never be a perfect representation of the actor. But while the use of digital resurrection is relatively new, there are already some examples of the technology being used in films and television. One example is the 2016 movie Rogue One A Star Wars Story, which digitally resurrected Peter Cushing to reprise his role as Grand Moff Tarkin, This caused controversy, with some fans appreciating the opportunity to see this character once again, while others thought it was just disrespectful to Cushing's legacy. Another example is the recent release of the film Finding Jack, which uses digital resurrection to bring James Dean back to life to star in the movie. The film has not yet been released, but it has already faced criticism for exploiting Dean's legacy and not respecting his estate's wishes. So the debate surrounding digital resurrection of actors, it's really complex. While there are practical benefits to using the technology, it also raises ethical concerns about exploitation and the impact of an actor's legacy. The use of digital resurrection may be a powerful tool in storytelling, but it's one that must be used thoughtfully and with respect to those who have passed away.
1: So I was trying to find some like, famous examples, obviously you mentioned one, and, and we, we all can probably think of a few of this happening, When I actually stumbled on something I didn't know, and I don't know if you know this. So Chris Farley, the comedy actor who accidentally overdosed and died in 1997, you know Chris Farley. Right. When he died, he was recording the voice for Shrek. Did you know this? (laughs) No, I did not know that. Apparently, according to this BuzzFeed article, he had almost recorded all of the dialogue, too. But they decided we cannot proceed with this. Let's re-record the whole thing and brought in Mike
0: Myers. Yeah, I don't know if you necessarily want an actor's legacy to end with their portrayal of Shrek. No disrespect to Shrek as a franchise. But
1: speaking of Mike Myers, you know what? I've actually never seen any of the Austin Powers movies. I mean...
0: You know, if you watched them when they came out, you probably thought they were funny. That's exactly you, how I feel about if it. If you tried to watch them now, I think you would just despise them. Like, that's I think it. you would just be so bored and totally agree. not laughing. I think nostalgia is very powerful for a movie like Austin Powers, and that's probably where all the laughs are going to come from. And you don't know how many people fight me on this. Like,
1: no, nah, it's, it's still funny. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, I remember, and it was like 2008... I mean, I was in college when this happened. Uh, A buddy and I, it was like a Saturday night, (laughs) and we we were trying to think of something to do, and so we, we went to Walmart. This is like... I don't even know why we really went to Walmart. I don't know if the intention was to buy a movie or not, but we bought Chipmunk Adventure. So we're grown men. We bought <laughs> Chipmunk Adventure, which was a movie that was big when I was like six. I don't know, it's Alvin and the Chipmunk. And so we we had remembered really liking it, and so we watched it as 20-year-old men, and I think we made it maybe five minutes into it. It was so horrible and unlogical. So basically, all the Austin Powers movies would be Chipmunk Adventure to me. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, CommuteThePodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Salmons For Jasis and I'm Dave Drop. We'll see you next week. Do your
0: best, Austin Powers. <laughs> I'm not going to do that I'll I, don't just mean, I don't even know what he sounds like, like He goes, yeah so baby <laughs> But
1: just try it Just do it once I'll delete it You will not delete no, I will. it I will, I won't put won't. it on there I don't even know what he sounds like I just, I just told you but Just once Even just say yeah I just, just for me It's just for me You're still recording No I'm not it's yeah,
0: you are. It says recording Just do it once I mean it's all <laughs> <awful. laughs> It's not off. It says recording. (laughs) Yeah, baby. (laughs) Horrible. I know.